Morning, good morning. Second time is the charm. Uh, good morning, it is, it's great to be with you. Um, I was joking with someone this morning, if it takes me a couple minutes to feel like I'm comfortable up here, it's because it's been a little while since I've had the chance to share with you on a Sunday morning, but I'm excited to do so, and I'm glad that you're here to be a part of it. Um, like we, we mentioned earlier, last week, Pastor Kevin began our February sermon series called Enigma. And uh, throughout the, the month, we're looking at the person of David. And, and a lot of us at least know some of David's stories, right? Some of the ones that we learned as a young person, um, we can recall those uh, real, real easy, very quickly. Um, so we know a little bit about David. We know a little bit about the good things he did. Last week, we talked about one of the areas that he really fell flat on his face. And so we're looking at what makes David an enigma. And before we get going too far, uh, an enigma is a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, and difficult to understand. And when I started to think about our, our lives, my life, I realized that we are surrounded by enigmas. We're surrounded by things and people who we just can't make sense of. And I also realized something, I narrowed it down a little bit, we're related to most of them, okay? <laughs> in some form or another. Think uh, those of you who are mar married, your spouse at times is an enigma that goes both directions, okay? Women, you can be hard to understand at times. Men, we are mysterious by nature um, and difficult to understand as well. Uh, if, for those of you who have young children or you can remember when they were young, a toddler's vocabulary and words are in fact an enigma right? It sounds like they're speaking pig Latin, but they ask for a, a bowl of grapes, and you're the only human who can understand that. That's kind of our life right now. Um, Michigan left turns, to me, are an enigma. They make no sense. Why do I have to go right when I, have, I need to go left? Why do I have to drive by Menards to come back to it? I didn't come up with it, so it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, uh, insurance is an enigma, right? You pay for something that you hope does what you want it to do and you'll, you'll find out when they send you a bill in the mail um, whether or not it did. Uh, you know, taxes are a fun one. Uh, you, you owe us money, but we can't tell you how much you owe. You have to tell us and then we'll tell you if you're wrong. Uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then finally, um, this one shouldn't surprise anyone, but I will offend a couple people. Teenagers, you are in fact enigmas. You make no sense to anyone. I'm sorry. Okay? Amen. I got an amen up front. That was worth it. Um, so as we talk about David this month, we realize that he is a little bit of an enigma. There's certain things about him, certain things about his life, about his uh, life as king that don't make a whole lot of sense. And so we're going to kind of touch base on those a little bit here today. So we're looking at an aspect of who David is that is hard to comprehend. And we find it in 1 Samuel, and um, it really sets up um, something that's attached with David throughout his entire life and afterwards as it pertains to him being king and being used by God. The prophet Samuel, he's talking to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, and what he's doing is he's informing him of God's disapproval in his leadership. So God is literally talking to King Saul, telling him how, how upset he is with his leadership. And what he's really doing is he's setting up king, uh, David to become the next king in Israel. Excuse me. 
So it's kind of a bummer of a passage if you're, Paul, if you're Saul. Um, and uh, we're going to pick that up in 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is, uh, he's, he's speaking to Saul right now. It's Samuel talking. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. He lays it out very directly, very succinctly. He tells uh, King Saul that he, his time as king is limited. And, and more so, he already has in mind who the next king is. So that's, it's like finding your own, knowing there's a replacement for you before he's actually there. Uh, Because there was some time that took place between when Samuel said this and between when David became king. And so before we get a little too far uh, down uh, down the rabbit hole, I want to look at a couple, just three kind of points off of that verse. Um, It's actually saying that David will fulfill the desires of God's heart rather than oppose what God wants like Saul was doing. So it's like an additional slap in the face to Saul, literally calling him out saying, you are living in opposition to what God is calling you to do, but I've found someone who will carry out what I want to happen. It kind of makes sense why Saul reacted to David the way that he did later on in the story. It's also thought that when the rejection of Saul's leadership was made, David was a very young boy. So it's, again, there's some time that takes place between when Saul's told, hey, you're about to be done. And then there's that waiting game, which is such a challenge as well. And then finally, the decision to remove King Saul was made because God is all knowing. God knew who Saul was. God knew that no matter what happened, Saul's heart would not be changed. It would not turn back to wanting to fulfill and carry out what God was calling him to do. So God saw the entire uh, span, the entire situation at this moment. He knew that Saul's heart would not change. But last week, you might be thinking, we looked at David's life, did we look at life, and we looked at a very, very public and overt uh, mistake that he made. Uh, uh, he sinned against God. He sinned against um, other people. He failed as a man, as a king, and as a friend. And this is, for me, part of what makes David confusing and hard to understand, is God calls David a man after his own heart. But if we look back to last week, he had an affair with a woman. She became pregnant. He killed her husband, like all of these things. And you look at that and you think, how in the world could David still be considered a man after God's own heart? I could never understand how God who knows everything would say that about David before he did any of those things because he was making a declaration over David's life. He knew that David would sin against him. He knew that that God's heart would be grieved and I just couldn't figure it out. But it turns out, the answer is kind of, it kind of follows um, in subsequent, cha- or subsequent chapters here in 1 Samuel. But uh, we see that for, uh, in 1 Samuel, a little later, God is sending Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel. And he says this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That last line is what the difference is. God looks at the heart, not what we look like, not how tall we are, thank goodness. Um, He looks at what is on the inside. 
See, David messed up worse than most. I think it's probably fair to say that in this room, those who are in uh, earshot of me, David messed up worse than any of us, right? He literally committed murder, okay? I hope that, that that's, we don't, none of us are close to that. But David did that, and yet God still viewed him in a way where he looked at the core of the man, not the mistakes that the man made. And so that's kind of where we're, we're going here today. God knew David's heart and knew that even though he sinned against God and Uriah and Bathsheba, that he would be overcome with remorse, regret, and he would renew his commitment to following after God. That's what God knew about him, despite what David actually did. He knew that David, uh, he knew who David was as a man and knew that when he got out of his own way, he would pursue, promote, and elevate what was important to God. And that's the difference because it got to a point where Saul was not willing to uh, acknowledge his own mistakes and he wasn't willing to follow after what God was telling him to do, which is why David was brought into the picture. So I want to, looking at this enigma, realizing that God says this about David, and then David makes these mistakes. I want to look at a couple points, uh, a couple things that were present in David's life that I believe led God to make that declaration over, over David, that helped him understand his heart. So the first thing I want to touch on briefly is David's faith. David was a man of faith, even from a very young age. First Samuel 17, we look at um, a story that many of us know from childhood. In fact, it's Levi's favorite Bible story. We read the Bible before we go to bed every night, and he always asks to read about the giant and the boy with the stones. It's sort of a violent story. I don't, should I be concerned, AJ? Um, uh, okay, we'll talk later. But he, it's memorable to him. He, he loves it. He wants to read it. But we know um, just the, the magnitude of that story. But that story really, beyond what David actually did, he demonstrates uh, an immense amount of faith just in that moment. So as a young man, he was a man of faith. He believed and he trusted in God. And it's one thing, I think, to believe what God says, but it's another thing to act in accordance to that faith right? I, can, I could believe that God said, hey, I want to destroy this, this giant and just look around and wait for somebody else to do it. But David acted on that faith that he had. When he brought his brother's supplies uh, to the battlefield, they were fighting the Philistines. He encountered Goliath's challenge, and he just couldn't stand for what Goliath was saying. He couldn't stand for the defiance, and he acted upon, uh, in faith upon those convictions. In 1 Samuel 17, 36 and 37, this is David talking to King Saul. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. The thing I love about that is, uh, David, he says what he's a accomplished already. He killed a, a bear and a lion kind of with his bare hands, but he says that God enabled him to do it. 
So right off the bat, he's giving God credit for something amazing that's already taken place. And he can simply say with faith and confidence that it will be the same way. God will allow me to do this. It's not me doing it in my own strength. God is the one that is doing it. And, and really, he overcame so much fear in that one statement because when he walks out on that battlefield and he sees that giant who's eight, nine, 10 feet taller than him, however you want to look at it, that would, that would stir some things kind of on the inside, no matter how confident you are. But David acted in faith. He, had, uh, he didn't just hope that God would give him victory over Goliath. He knew that he would, and he had complete trust and confidence in God and his ability to allow David to be victorious. And it's a stark contrast to King Saul because after David says those things to King Saul, King Saul kind of, I, I imagine him kind of laughing and he's saying, you, you're literally a little kid. And this guy has been trained to fight and kill his entire life. And so there's, there's, a, there's a change in position there um, between David and King Saul. There's no way that he could do it. So I do have a little bit of a, a poll to take. So if in this room, because you're all I can see, sorry, hub and online, um, are there any optimists in here? Okay. Couple of you, if you wouldn't have raised your hand, I would have. I, Justina, you're lying because you are. Um, okay, so there's some optimists. Any, is anyone willing to admit that they're a little bit naturally more pessimistic? My hand is right here. All right, I, I see those hands. Okay, there's some spouses raising hands too. Um, so I've come to the conclusion when it comes to being a little bit more of a pessimist, I do not possess the energy to be an optimist. Okay, it's not. I just can't do it. I, I can't do it. We have kind of an ongoing joke here in the office that I serve as a lead weight to Pastor Kevin, okay? Um, and and I, he, he, can see, he can see everything without, um, without hesitation, without um, roadblock, and I'm like, hey, come back to planet Earth and let's talk about this. Um, and that's, really, that's a really great quality. As a leader, you need a leader who, who is optimistic, who can jump on board, get rolling, doesn't acts in faith, all of those things. Um, but I like to remind him that it's also good to have a little balance. So we, we go back and forth about this a, a little bit uh, amongst ourselves. But um, I realize sometimes I'm guilty of being the King Saul, Right? I'm guilty of seeing a situation and looking at only what's in front of me rather than the whole picture, rather than acting in faith much like David did, thinking that this kid is legitimately nuts for wanting to go fight this giant. And there's times where I think subconsciously where I'm guilty of using that as an excuse, calling myself a realist, um, but realizing that it's, it's, it's actually holding my faith in action back, Right? And so that was one thing that really stuck out to me about David is his faith. He didn't look at what was in front of him. He looked at, listened to, and depended on what God was saying. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I, as humans, I think we tend to look at what's right in front of us. We tend to look at um, that diagnosis. We tend to look at the issue that's going on um, at work or in our family and forget the, 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 the promises that God has made us to be with us no matter what, to prosper us and not to harm us. All of those things, we're guilty of taking our focus off of him. So that's the first thing that I wanted to point out this morning is that David's faith is what allowed him to be used by God that day. 
It was his faith that paved the way for God to use him as king, even though he made mistakes. So moving on, number two, I want to talk about David's humility for just a moment. It's weird to think of a king being humble, um, but I do think throughout his life he did exhibit um, a number of instances of extraordinary humility. And the first one I want to touch on here briefly is 1 Samuel 18, 22 through 23. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. Seems like a strange checklist of things to happen. Um, they repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor, ma- poor man and little known. He literally is offered something that in that day and age, people would probably quite frankly kill for, to be brought into the royal family, to, to get everything that comes along with that. And his response was about how unimpressive he is to the world, right? But the interesting thing is at this time, his resume was growing. Not only did he kill a bear and a lion as a boy, he killed Goliath. He was already anointed as king. Um, He succeeded in every arena that he entered, and he was loved by the people of Israel. He had everything going for him. And without humility, his response would have been, it's about time I get recognized for what I've done. And he would feel a little bit entitled to that. And instead, he responded in humility. And I think that that's a characteristic that God absolutely loves, not only in David, but he loves it in us when we respond in humility to things like this. A couple of things that we can learn from David's humility is that a humble heart accepts God's plan, even when it's different from our own plan. Pastor Kevin talked a couple of weeks ago about how David wanted to, to build a place for the Lord to be, for the presence of God to live. He was in a tent, and, and David was, he was horrified by that fact. And, and God said, okay, we can do this, but you're not going to be the one that does it. It's going to be your son, Solomon. So he, he has this idea of something great to do. And you would think, again, human nature, you'd be discouraged, you'd be frustrated, but that, that was my idea because we want credit for what is our idea. That's a human, uh, a thing that we deal with as, as humans. I want to be able to carry this out. But his immediate response we see in 2 Samuel 7, 22, he simply says, how great are you, how great are you sovereign Lord? There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. He literally just turns around and praises God. And that, that sort of humility to be okay when something doesn't happen the way that you think it should happen is pretty remarkable. And um, I don't know about you guys, but when I have an idea of how, when, and um, in which manner something should be done, and I've worked it all out in my head, and it doesn't happen, that's not always easy for me, right? But David literally turns around to worship God and to thank him in the midst of that situation, So a humble heart accepts God's plan even when it's different from his own. And then the second half of that is that a humble heart also receives God's forgiveness. And that's an interesting thing to think of, that to receive God's forgiveness, we have to humble ourselves because we have to be willing to admit and understand that we've messed up and that God is the only one that can fix the situation. Uh, a humble heart also receives forgiveness. King Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, 
he, um, he tries to justify his actions, right? He tries to make excuses and um, maybe blame it on somebody else. It's a lot like um, at home, uh, and I, you know, I'm going to be guilty of talking about Levi a lot, but hey, I got talked a lot about as a kid as well, so he can just deal with it. Um, but it's like Levi <laughs> happened the other day where he walked up to his brother, who's eight months old. He can't fend for himself unless your finger's in his mouth. Um, and he just hit him with the, like a stuffed toy, just hit him right across the head. Right? So you, you sit Levi down. Say, Levi, why would you do that? And then he starts making excuses. Well, I was just giving him his toy. In the face? No. Okay? He, he, tried, he tried to manipulate the situation and, and make excuses to get out from being in trouble. Three-year-olds are really smart when it comes to those things. Um, but Saul was much the same. When he was confronted with what he did, he tried to pass the blame. But David didn't do that. Now, he didn't come out right and be like, hey, guys, I screwed up. He, you know, Nathan came to him and confronted him. But when David was confronted with his own sin, he was grief-stricken. He begged for forgiveness and begged for a clean heart. And he wrote the entire chapter of Psalms 51 as a response when the prophet Nathan called out his actions. So David was humble. He made mistakes, but he, he kept humility throughout his life, which is really incredible, especially being given the name, you know, being referred to as a man after God's own heart. That would be easy to let that go to your head. But I believe that David kept that from happening. So thirdly, uh, in uh, just the last couple minutes here this morning, I want to look at David's repentance. David had a, a different way of going through repentance than um, I think most, because he was a musician, he wrote, and so we, we can see the process that he went through um, in some of these uh, areas. So again, um, for those of you who have kids, you'll understand this connection, but there is nothing in the world less genuine than a forced apology, right? A, for, a forced apology. My last story about Levi. Um, he, uh, <clears throat> he went through this period for about a month or two where if you did something he didn't like, if you told him no or didn't let him do something, he would look at you and you'd say, you're not my best friend anymore. <laughs> and uh, that was just kind of his way to make sure you, you knew that he was unhappy. Um, so then we would talk about being kind with our words and those sort of things. And okay, now I, you need to apologize. Can you say I'm sorry? And he'd say, I'm sorry, and say, what are you sorry for? I don't know, you know? So you try to teach him to, to attach what you're sorry for to the apology because otherwise it doesn't mean anything. But um, unless we're sincere in our repentance, it's much like that. It's much like a forced apology that we have a guilt associated with it. It doesn't really mean anything. It's not true, it's not genuine, it's not from the heart. But see, the moment that David was called out for his actions against Bathsheba and Uriah and against God, this was his response. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't try to pass the blame. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, he just said, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, I made a mistake. I messed up. Uh, it won't happen again. He, he laid it out plainly. Um, I have sinned against the Lord. And I know that this doesn't make amends for what he did, but he didn't also continue to hide it. He chose 
to act in repentance. It doesn't take away what he did and how he affected and, and ruined some lives, but he chose to move forward and go to God for repentance. He was honest before Nathan and God in that moment. And then in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He acknowledges that some of those things had been present in his life prior. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. He realized that he messed up and he acknowledged it and he asked for God's grace to restore those things that because of his actions were lost. And that I think is, is really the kind of the epitome of his humility. He didn't really have a choice but to accept it because he was called out by Nathan and by God. But that was his response, literally chapter full of, of just begging God for his mercy. He asked God and was granted his request to not be defined by his sin, but restored to God. And I think that's the thing that I, I want us to kind of leave with today is that nothing David did changed God's view of him. They carried consequences and he had to deal with that consequence. That, that baby that Bathsheba um, bore died because of what David did. He had to carry those out, but he still called David a man after his own heart all throughout the process. Our shortcomings will never change how God views us. And I want you to be encouraged in that today because it's easy to focus on what's in front of us. It's easy for us to focus on the mistakes that we've made or um, the relationships that have been burned or things of that nature. But that's not how God views us. He doesn't view us by those mistakes. And I, for one, I'm so grateful for that because failure is being part of being human. We all fail. We all fail in different arenas and different magnitude as we see with, with David. But God is, I think God is also concerned with what we do after the fact. What do we do after whether we realize our shortcoming or we're confronted on it or we, we have a falling out? What's our next step? Because I think in those moments, that reveals to God our heart. Are we willing to come back to him and submit it to him? Or are we trying to pass off blame and, and re-divert the situation to point out other shortcomings? <clears throat> the fact that David is an enigma is actually more of a demonstration of God's restorative nature that he desires for each and every one of us. The fact that David is so confusing because God gave him such a unique title despite what he did, it actually says more about God than David. Because God was willing to look at him in that way, knowing his shortcomings, but he knew him so intimately that he knew what his response would be. I think David kind of acted out what we see in Acts 3.19 that says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God doesn't hang on to those mistakes that we make. He removes them. He doesn't bring them up. He doesn't remind us of them next time something like that happens. But instead, he's looking to bring us back to him. And you might be here today and you might think that 
maybe your past keeps you from being used by God or kind of rules you out of something great that God would want to to use you for, but I think the story of David proves that that's not true, right? In the New Testament, God used uh, Paul, who literally killed Christians. That was his job, but yet he, he used him, reclaimed his life, and allowed him to be just the most influential figure in the New Testament outside of the person of Jesus. So God doesn't hold those against us. He doesn't hold grudges, but he's concerned about where we go from there. And I think that's the thing that we should take away from the life of David. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He, he forgets them. And so what I just want to encourage you in this week, and we're just going to kind of conclude in prayer here in just a moment, because I, I just want, I want to set you up to, to have this on your heart this week is to remember the life of David. Remember some of these things that we've talked about. Allow them to to rest on your heart and allow them to be at work. David's faith, he he didn't even question God. He acted in faith. And God responded to that faith. God didn't leave him out to dry when he faced Goliath. God allowed him to be victorious. David's humility is, is so incredible because Without that humility, I don't think God would have blessed him quite as much as he did. The ability to continue to put focus on God and what he did in his life. And then his ability to, to repent when, when needed. Allow those, those things to kind of penetrate your heart this week and just see what God will do in it. Because I think if we can continue to apply things like that to our lives, God's going to continue to do really amazing things. So I would just invite you to bow your heads with me here as we pray here for just a moment. Lord, I thank you that that we see through the lives of some of those who you use the most throughout Scripture, that, that you view us in a way that at times we're not even able to view ourselves. God, you spoke those words over David's life, a man after your, your own heart, way before he had any any notion what that would look like, what that would mean, how that would apply to his life. And God, it so clearly you have demonstrated that what you care about is our heart. And yes, when we sin, it separates us from you, and that's what breaks your heart as a result of that sin. But God, your desire is to always bring us back. Your desire is always to restore that relationship to be able to extend forgiveness to us. And God, I pray that as we leave this place, we would be encouraged and that we would um, be impacted by the life of David. God, that we would act in faith this week as we walk with you, as we go to work, as we're in the home, as we're dealing with situations um, in relationships, that we would be able to walk in faith knowing who you are and the promises that you have made to us. God, I pray that we would remain humble. We would remain humble when things don't go our way. And God, we would also um, remain, remain humble just in every aspect of our lives, that we would be able to submit ourselves to you, that we would be able to ask for and receive your forgiveness. God, I pray for the one who might be here today who is convinced that you cannot and you have no interest in forgiving them. God, I pray that you would break that misunderstanding and that they would understand 
that they would be able to grasp onto that your forgiveness is is all abounding. God, all you all you want to do is to bring us back to a relationship with you. And finally, God, I pray that when we position ourselves in a place of repentance, God, that we would be able to to lay it all out to you, that we would not hide anything from you, that we would be able to take the approach of David and allow our repentance, allow our grief, allow our our broken heart to change who we are. God, I thank you that you are a God of forgiveness. I thank you that you are a God who looks at the heart and not the mistakes. And Lord, as you don't define us by them, I pray that we would be able to break um, that that power that we give our mistakes um, in our own lives this week, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I pray that you are able to kind of let some of those words um, penetrate your heart this week and they, they impact you positively. And um, I know they did for me. It's one of those, I always say, messages like this aren't just for you. They're for me just as much. Um, so I, I'm glad to be able to be a part of what God has for us today. Pray that you have a, an amazing week. Um, stay around, grab some coffee and a snack. We'd love to hang out for a little bit. Um, our Church Online family, thank you. We love you. And we uh, pray you guys have a great week. Thanks.